Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now on today's episode, our guests are Richard Ruback and Joyce Yudkoff and they are professors at Harvard Business School and authors of the book HBR Guide to Buying a Small Business. And I think today's discussion is going to be very interesting, in particular for those who aren't particularly happy about pursuing the corporate career path, they do not want to climb the corporate ladder, but at the same time, going down the startup route feels like a very risky path to them. As it turns out, there is a third option to consider, that of buying a small business and running it like your own company. And that is the option that Richard and Royce are going to be talking to us about today. So I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And with that, let's welcome Richard Ruback and Royce Yudkoff. Richard, Royce, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sonali. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. So tell us a little bit about this really interesting new idea that you have. I don't know if it's a new idea. It seems that it's been around for a while, but how people do not have just two options in front of them, that of either going down the startup route or taking up a job, but there's a third option to consider. Sure. I'll, this is Royce. I'll jump in first. Rick, please join in. Sure. Uh, but, um, you know, there. what Rick and I have found is that there are many people who want a career that is more independent than working for someone else's company, but they've been put off from traditional entrepreneurship, startup entrepreneurship, either because they don't have some great idea they want to build a business around, or because they're daunted by the risk of a startup where really everything has to be invented, product, service, business model, hiring. And this option is a very different path in that you're buying an established business that's demonstrated it can be profitable where the entire business model works and can be observed over a 10 or 20 year history. And so the risks are a lot lower than startup entrepreneurship. Hmm. And yet the prospect for financial reward for a independent self-controlled career is much higher than working in someone else's company. And so these are some of the attributes that Rick and I have noticed really arrest people's attention who weren't aware of this option. Rick? Yeah, and if and if people have taken, uh, for example, if people have gone to business school and they're imagining what their career paths can be like after business school, uh, they can, as Roy said, take a traditional job. They can try to start something. But what we find, at least compared to what most people do, uh, this path of finding a small business to buy and then buying it with a collection of investors and then running it for maybe the next 10 years of your life provides really great independent lifestyle and provides financial rewards, which are pretty comparable to the uh, traditional career paths of most business school graduates. I see. Yeah, this this is a very, very interesting idea. So I think to, to help really crystallize this for the audience, maybe you can sh- give us a few examples of the kind of businesses we're talking about here. Sure. Well, the small businesses that uh, we teach about and we focus our students on are typically businesses that have a annual pre-tax profit 
of between one and two million dollars a year. Hmm. They're very stable and proven. Typically, they've been around uh, anywhere for 10 to 30 years, and they're being sold by a retiring founder. The employee base is roughly, on average, maybe 30 people, so a good span of responsibility for a first-time CEO taking over an established business. And the nature of these businesses just runs the full length of anything you could imagine, because what Rick and I have found is that good small businesses often operate in little niches. In other words, they're good businesses because they found some niche where they can be a devastating, terrific competitor. They're just small because the niche is small. So some of the businesses our former students have bought have been high-rise window washing companies, companies that pressure test hoses for fire departments, companies that process insurance reimbursement for specialized healthcare providers, companies that rent musical instruments to grade school students. So just all sorts of niche businesses that you might not be aware of until you start to dive into the flow of companies for sale. Oh, very interesting. I see. So it's so you're you're talking about businesses which are still pretty profitable. You you quoted profits of, of around one to two million dollars a year. It might be a little higher or lower than that. And the reason mm-hmm. that they are continuing to be stable is because they're operating in such a small market that there isn't really scope for having a lot of competitors. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. It's also that it's also that the nature of these kinds of businesses is that they tend not to be a very important part of the business that they're serving. So for example, maybe a good example is think about, this is one of Royce's favorite examples, a knife sharpener for a restaurant, you know, the service that sharpens the knives. There's no particular reason why the restaurant would ever switch to a different knife sharpening business because, you know, as long as you're providing your service, you're there on time, you do the job well, you're clean, you're neat, you provide no aggravation to the restaurateur they can start focusing on what they need to focus on. So there's no reason ever to switch. And it's true. It's not It's not a business where there's big uh, scope for competition. But one of the interesting things about the small businesses that we think are so interesting, the, these sort of dull service businesses often or small manufacturing businesses, is that, is that great service and great, great execution itself becomes a barrier to entry. People don't have a reason to switch. Hmm. That's a very good point. So the customers just do not probably don't care about this as much. So they're not looking to switch. And so that keeps on going the the steady stream of revenue for you. Yeah, it's not that you don't care. It's not that you don't care. It's that it's not a very big part of your expense items. So if you're worried about what it is you can do to cut expenses, are you going to look at your big expense items first? Right, those are the ones you're going to be more competitive on. You're not going to be as competitive on the ones that are just small. And you know, it's it's. I like to say it's important to be unimportant, right? Okay. So yeah. so, but but yet essential, right? So the knives have to be sharp, uh, the fire hoses have to be safe, the instruments have to be in the kids' hands, but it's not the primary thing. Got it, got it. So I want to understand the... And Sonali, if I could just add to Rick's comments, there's a measurement that Rick and I uh, repeatedly teach our students to look at in these types of businesses, hmm. which is the the recurrence of customer revenues. In other words, really great small businesses 
you know, from year to year to year, 90% or more of their revenues come from the same customers. So as you start each year, you don't have to worry about where you're going to generate your revenues. You know that the overwhelming bulk of revenues will come from the customers who bought from you last year, and then you can go around and try to add a few more customers. But it gives these businesses great stability. And all of the businesses that Rick and I have just been talking about have that quality in them. I see. Yeah. No, I I, I mean, I'm very surprised that this option is not heard more about because one to two million dollars a year in profits is, is pretty decent. So let's say that I am right now contemplating either taking up a job or starting my own company, right? And then I hear about this third option. And it sounds interesting to me. How do you think a person should go about making this decision that is this the right thing for me or not? What are the pros and cons to consider? Rick, would you like to start with that? Sure. Um, I, I was just thinking, I, we usually start meeting students and people after they've, they've walked down this road a little bit, but, but usually it's, they think about the traditional job first because that's sort of the safest career path. And, and I think, I think there the big issue is whether the traditional job provides something that the person, you know, really needs some association, for example, you know, I work for McKinsey, I work for the Harvard Business School, I work for uh, GE, you, you know, household brand names where you're getting, where the affiliation is in itself something that you'll value or you want a social network that comes with your job. Uh, those are the kinds of reasons why people go with the traditional career paths as well as the money. I mean, it's it's good money, but as we said, the money tends to equate over over one's career. So I think, so I think in the traditional thing, if, if you really want that affiliation, you're not going to get that in small business. So traditional paths go. But if you don't really care that much about the affiliation and you're an independent sort of person that likes to be self-directed, that moves you to a more entrepreneurship career. And as you think about entrepreneurship, you have kind of two ways to do it. I think one is the startup, which has, uh, as Royce already talked about, what I call the blank sheet of paper risk, right? That you have to invent everything from the beginning. For some people, they find that exciting and thrilling and, and there's just no substitute for that. For me, I would find that intimidating and daunting. And also it's, it's, it's not really what I'm good at. What I'm really good at, I think, other than being a professor, uh, <laughs> is buying something and then moving it in the direction of higher profit. So not inventing the business model, but taking the business model and refining it and improving it. So if that's what you think you're really good at, you're really good at managing a business, not inventing a business, then buying your own small business is the way to go as opposed to the other two paths. Royce, you probably have a better cut at that. No, that's great. You know, when when we do run into people who are exploring this path, I think uh, there are two things that seem to be pretty effective in helping them decide if this is for them. One is uh, kind of very basic. They track down some people who have done this, and it's a pretty helpful community because Young people who have gone out and bought, searched for a business to buy and bought it and now run it, uh, reached out to others before them. And so they kind of, they kind of pay it back. And so 
I think just interviewing two or three people who have marched down this path gives a lot of color as to what the life is like to people. Cool. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the book that Rick and I wrote, uh, How to Buy a Small Business, is really something that almost every searcher, early stage searcher reads because it it's a roadmap that marches them through. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And even before you do it, it allows you to close your eyes and say, could I envision myself reaching out to small business brokers and sourcing deals and parsing through deals? And could I envision running a small company? So those two steps, I think, are very clarifying for people who think this might be of interest to to them. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, we have lots of examples in the book. Uh, uh, can I add one more thing, sure. if I might? Is yeah. that is that one of the things we we note is that people tend to make decisions sometimes thinking about you know how it's going to feel over the next year, and we really encourage people to think how it's going to feel over their lifetime, uh, over their over their working careers, and, and the reason we say that is that is that uh, we have a blog post on this, but uh, if I could just summarize quickly, is that if you think about going out to buy your own small business, it is a daunting thought. You know, it's something you've never done before versus continuing in the job you have or even going out to find a new job. Uh, those are things where you'll have a boss, there'll be somebody to tell you what to do. Going out to buy a business, you'll you'll have guides like our book, but you're not, you know, a lot of this you're going to have to discover what works for you. And I think if you think about what life is like that next year while you're looking, year or two while you're looking for a business, you don't have any income coming in, that's a pretty stressful year. But if you look over your lifetime, what you'll discover is that your time in running a small business uh, is great. And the time in a traditional career path has added challenges as you go through it. So, you know, Royce and I see lots of small business owners uh, every year, and we always ask them, many of them come to class, and we ask them, you know, what would you do differently? Would you, you know, do you wish you had taken a traditional job? Do you wish you did this? Do you wish you did that? And nobody ever, ever, ever says, oh, now that I've been an entrepreneur, and I've been running my own small business, what I'd really like to do is get a traditional job. <laughs> Nobody yeah. ever says yeah. that. On the other hand, people who we meet who have traditional jobs always tell us, wow, that is such a cool path. I sure wish I did that. And I think the reason that you get this disparity is that this is the kind of career, buying a small business is the kind of career, that as you get into it and proceed along the path, it gets better and better through time. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think anyone who values independence will will appreciate this. And, and once you've had a taste of it, it's probably hard to go back to a traditional job with its structures and hierarchy and everything. Yeah. Right. So it yes. sounds like you take a class on this topic at HBS. Two. Two classes, one in the fall, one in the spring. Uh, the fall class is sort of a case-based course where we talk about 28 or so different small businesses uh, throughout the term and, and their problems and challenges and opportunities and aspirations. And so we do that in the fall. And then in the spring, we teach a course uh about how to actually go about buying a small business. Got it, got it. Okay. So yes, I uh, actually, quick follow-up question to the community of people point that was made that you can reach out to people who've already gone down this path and talk to them about how it went. So how do I find people who've done this before? So, you know, the easiest way to do it, I think, if 
you know, you don't know anyone who's done this, and most people don't, is to just do a Google search for search funds because the generic term for this process is called searching, and people think of themselves as sort of creating a search fund to go look. And what will happen is you'll get a whole bunch of very simple little websites that have been set up by searchers, uh, which are really aimed for business brokers or owners of businesses to check them out. And then I'd start calling a few of those people and and then ask them for a reference of someone else they know. And I think in a handful of interviews, it would really breathe life into what is the experience like of going out and sourcing small firms for sale and evaluating them and closing on them? And then what's the experience like in the early years of running your own proven established small business? So I'm always a big believer in sort of talking to people who actually have engaged in the experience as a first step to see, to answer the question, is this for me? Could I do this? That's where I would start. Right. So you referenced search funds, which I think gets into the search process, which I'm very, very curious about because I have no idea how you would find these businesses. So let's say I've decided that, okay, you know, this sounds interesting. I think I want to do it. What should be my sure. next step? Well, the first step by our book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll go then to the second step after you've after you've done that and lovingly read through the book, which will of course answer all of these questions. Okay. But um, you know, probably the first step that Rick and I recommend to people who are who are starting to search for a business, besides this sort of bit of housekeeping, like setting up a setting up a little firm that meaning incorporating so you have a name as a business and it sort of conveys a professionalism and purpose, which is very easy to do, is to reach out to the community of small business brokers. It turns out, and this may surprise you, there are about 3,000 brokers in the U.S. who specialize in brokering small private businesses that are for sale, businesses of the type that Rick and I are talking about. And these people, of course, want to be found. They collect listings from owners of businesses, and uh, they're looking for buyers so they can match them up and facilitate a transaction. And so you start to do outreach by calling these people up, explaining what you're doing, conveying a credibility and a sincerity of purpose. And very quickly, you'll start to get a flow of 10, 20 businesses a week that are for sale. Because in the North American economy, there are thousands and thousands of small businesses of the type we're talking about that trade hands every year. Hmm. So that would be the first step, I think, because you'll immediately get a flow and you'll be bathing in the choices of businesses for sale and starting to teach yourself what to look for. Rick, would you add something to that? Your first step really depends on a little bit of the kind of search you want to do, and you may not know at the beginning. But for example, if you have a particular industry that you're interested in, it may make sense to go to a trade association meeting even before you start formally searching. See what the landscape looks like. Who's in this business? Where are the businesses located? What are the revenue sizes? What are the ages and general wealth of the owners? And there are trade association meetings for almost any sub-industry you might imagine. Uh, Similarly, People sometimes have a strong geographic preference. I really want to live in the New York City area. Hmm. In that case, then you start frequenting Chamber of Commerce meetings and the like. And you begin that informal networking process 
that lets you get a better sense of what businesses are available. And, and that is really a key first step in designing your search. Got it, got it. Yeah, so I'm actually curious about this point around. So, I mean, it's good to know that there are brokers who are already doing this. And you mentioned that how there are 3,000 brokers or so who are in this business. But but I, I don't know how I would identify an industry because based on the businesses that you described, so for example, someone who cleans windows of high-rise buildings or knife sharpening, right? Like these are so obscure things. Like I don't know how I would even think about these things. So is it possible to just go to these brokers and say, you know, maybe there are some interests like geography or something, but just give me what you have and then I'll start narrowing down. Yeah, and that's the easiest search. If you're open-minded uh, to anything, then you'll look at everything. And and there's good and bad at that. One is that, you know, you've got a pretty broad net, so you'll see lots of stuff. The cost of that is it just is going to take a lot of time and a lot of expense. Right. Generally- because you're going to be looking nationally or maybe even internationally at every imaginable industry mm. that's between, you know, $750,000 in profits to a couple million dollars in profits. And there are, you know, many thousands of those that you'll see in the marketplace every year. Usually, most commonly, searchers set some controls on this, like certain regions of the country would be a very common control, or they might focus on service businesses, and certainly they put a size range on it. But um, but you're right, Snally. You know, a big part of this is sort of a you know, it's a selection process where you're just seeing a flow of diverse businesses in a size range, and then picking out ones that meet certain quality characteristics that you have, uh, because you will find businesses you never even imagined existed that. It will be great businesses. Exactly. Yeah. So what should I be looking for when I'm assessing whether this is a good buy or not? If I could hop in here, Royce. You hop in. Unless you want to. Well, no. uh, the first thing you should look for is whether the seller is really a seller. That seems like an odd thing. But one of the things that happens in these businesses is that take a business that has a million dollars of profits every year. That business, if it's like other businesses, will sell for around four million dollars. Uh, you know, on average, typically, maybe four and a half million dollars, but around four million dollars in the four million dollar range for four and a half million dollars. And while that seems like a lot of money, uh, the owner will pay some tax on that and then we'll invest it uh, prudently and and alike. And the kind of income from that four and a half million dollars or four million dollars half the tax is probably pretty small relative to the million dollars that the owner was putting in his or her pocket every year from owning the business. So what that means is that people are generally very hesitant to sell. And they only sell when they really have a strong reason to sell. Some of that strong reason may be they have a health issue, they're getting divorced, they've had enough of it, they're fatigued. It could be any number of reasons, but uh, one of the things the buyer really needs to do is to be sure that the seller is, in fact, committed to selling. And sometimes it's really hard to find uh, the answer to why somebody's selling, but you know, if, if somebody's young, vibrant, if the seller is young, vibrant, seems cheerful, seems happy, 
and interested in selling, I think that there's some suspicion that as you get down the road, this seller may not turn out to be a committed seller, may be interested in getting uh, pricing, maybe, mm. you know, what's my business worth? I'll see what somebody's willing to pay for it. That's, that, that's one incentive that happens. Sometimes people are willing to sell, but only at an outsized price. So I don't expect to sell my business for four or four and a half million dollars. Maybe I'll find somebody who will pay me 10, even though that's more than twice what it's worth. So finding this committed seller is, I think, the most important thing, but it's sometimes very hard to do that. Hmm. I have to find unhappy sellers who are ready to sell, I guess, uh, because if they're already in love with what they do, then it's probably harder for them to part with their business. And well, why- most people sell, you know, most businesses are owned by people, you know, baby boomers who started businesses and they're reaching the stage where they may want to do something else. So it's not necessarily they're unhappy. It's just that you know, the world has changed for them and it's time for them to go do something else. Right. Um, And uh, you mentioned, I I think this brings up an an important point though, that, you know, how if let's say a business is making a million dollars in profit, it'll sell for something like $4 million. How do I fund this? Because throughout this process, I'm envisioning an an individual going through this process and, right, how do I fund this? Well, in answering that question, first of all, we should just pause and note how economically attractive buying a business for $4 million that produces a million dollars of annual profit, how attractive that is, right? Because each year, the business is generating a 25% return on its purchase price. If you partially finance it with debt, the return on equity goes much, much higher. And if you grow the business, the return goes much higher. So it's an extraordinary economic opportunity which is created for a number of reasons, but exists in this small firm part of the market in a way you'd pay a much higher multiple of profit uh, for a larger business. But the way these are financed is typically uh, part of the purchase price is financed by getting a bank loan. And this can either be done through a marvelous program run by the SBA called the 7A program, which operates through banks, or just through a conventional bank loan. And that will typically cover about half the price. So so in our example of a $4 million purchase, roughly $2 million will be provided by a bank making a senior bank loan. Mm-hmm. Typically in this market, the seller will take back a portion of the purchase price as seller debt subordinated to the bank loan. And that's usually about 20% of the purchase price. So maybe another 800000 or a $1 million of that $4 million purchase price. And then one to one point two million of that four million dollar purchase price is is equity. Now it turns out there is a population of investors that repeatedly, routinely backs searchers in providing the equity in these deals in return for a portion of the ownership of the company. And this is a network that, you know, routinely five to fifteen of these investors will club together and each take pieces of the deal and they introduce searchers to each other because they want to form up in a little collection of investors who do this. So when Rick's and my students go out, they kind of contact with a few of these investors in this network, mostly high net worth individuals, some small institutions, and they quickly sort of work their way through the network and assemble a group of five to 15 investors who will look at the deal and then commit for the equity portion. 
And then the searcher keeps the peace as the organizer, entrepreneur, manager. And if they have any money, often they don't, they'll invest side by side with the investor. I see. Okay. And how long can this search process last for? So the search often takes about 18 months. Uh, we've seen it as quick as six months. Uh, we've seen it as long as three years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of luck in there's a lot of luck involved. A lot of it is, so I think there's, there's a few factors. Some of it's luck, you know, when are you going to find the company? Hmm. Some of it is learning. You need to know that you're not going to find the perfect company, but you need to find, you need to learn enough about the marketplace to know when you found a company that meets your thresholds is good enough, uh, and has a committed seller and is in a place you want to live, and has an industry that you have the ability to learn about and manage. Right. And so, and so, there's a number of things that have to work out for it to for the deal to actually get concluded. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, 18 months to three years is a fairly long time. So, I guess if I have to embark on this process, either I have to be able to support myself for that period of time because I won't have any income, or do any of these funds actually fund my search? Right. So there's, there's two or three ways to do it. One way to do it is to do it all on your own money. And, and when people do it all on their own money, it's not really necessarily their savings. Hmm. So what they do, for example, is they have a working spouse and the spouse is working and they're searching for a business, you know, living in the apartment that the spouse is paying for and, and like, so some way it's just family funding. Some people go back and they, you know, uh, they move in with their parents again right. and, and take a room in the basement and search from that. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way to do it. Call that the highly frugal path, <laughs> yeah. if you will. And, and the advantage of that is then once you buy the business, because you've not taken any money from anything, you can set the terms of the financing at that point. Hmm. So you'll usually get a better, much better deal for yourself if you do it that way than if you do it the second way. The second way is to actually raise money uh, for the search phase. And people usually raise enough money to pay themselves a salary. Usually the salary is half what they would make in the marketplace. So, you know, that might be seventy-five, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000, whatever half yeah. of what they would make in a traditional job is. Right. Uh, and the idea is half funded by investors. That's the half they get. And then the other half is sort of sweat equity right. into the eventual business. So they'll raise enough money for that and expenses. And usually when they raise money, they're not always, but often there are two people searching together. So that quickly can add up to be well over $500,000 of search capital. And so they'll usually do that by finding... 15 or 20 investors are willing to put in the amount of money they need to get to that. And, and then they're going to make some promises to the investors. The promise isn't that I will for sure find a business to buy, but the promise is if I find a business to buy, you'll get to buy it under these terms we've negotiated at the time. You give me money to search. Got it. Yeah. So it's like an option almost. So, on the, yeah. Yeah. But so you're going to get a worse, you know, so the investors at the time of the deal are going to get a better deal than they would have if the first time they, you know, the first commitment they made was at the deal stage. 
And then the third way, mm-hmm. and then the third way people fund it is they find a family office or a wealthy individual, and they say, wouldn't you really like to own a small business? Well, I'll go out and buy you one, and uh, why don't you give me a salary? So it's kind of a non-traditional funded search. You're not raising money from 20 investors. You're raising money from one and using those resources uh, and the backing of that wealthy individual or family office to go out and get it. And those are three, you know, that there are kind of endless variations of that third choice because it just depends on the people who are involved Mm -hmm. to what makes sense. But uh, they're usually, so there are those three paths. You do it on your own, self-funding, you get funded in a kind of traditional fund way with 15 or 20 investors or you go to some other mechanism to get funded. And I think this also sheds light on the kind of mindset that the person needs to be in because you need to really rough it out for 18 months to three years. And I think this is a little different from starting your own company because when you're starting your own company, you're building something, right? So you can see how, how it's getting built and, and maybe you're, you're starting to get some feedback from customers. Whereas I think this can maybe be a little bit more taxing because you don't have anything to show till you actually have a business that you've bought. Yeah, that's right. Every, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead, Rick. I was going to say, every day is a bad day until yeah. you until you have a good one. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you have to be willing to really, for next three years, I, I may not have anything and you have to be comfortable with that. Okay. Right. right. And usually searchers, you know, have an informal network of other searchers. I mean, part of that is to exchange ideas and figure things out. But part of it surely is, you know, to sort of keep up the morale and spirits as you kind of work alone through this search process. Most people who go down this path don't do it because they like to search. If they really like to search, they'd go into a business like private equity or investment banking. Uh, They do it because they want to run a business. So it it requires some tenacity and sense of purpose. Right, yeah. So I just have a few more questions more around sort of making a successful transition to the business. So let's say, you know, I I identify a business, I I have my initial conversation looks like a good business and I buy it. Now, how can I make sure, because as you're you know, describing them, these are fairly traditional businesses. People who are in these businesses may not necessarily be like you from similar backgrounds. So how do you make that transition? Well, one thing that I would just put out there is in virtually every acquisition of a small firm, part of the deal is a transition agreement with the selling owner, the founder, Hmm. where they'll stay around for anywhere from three to 12 months uh, transitioning their knowledge and experience and relationships to you, the buyer. And of course, because that seller has typically taken back a note for anywhere from 20 to 25% of the purchase price, they have a real powerful motivation, economic motivation, in addition to the fact they probably care a great deal about the business, but they have a powerful motivation to make that transition go smoothly. So one of the things that a buyer is getting is an on-the-job training with the experienced seller in how to operate the business. And mm-hmm. that's that's one key element in making sure this gets off to a good start. Rick, would you add anything to that? No, I think that, that you've captured the essence there. It's the transition agreement, and it's also... I mean, one of the things both Royce and I recommend is that when you buy a business, if you identify a business that you really like, that you think is a good, sustainable business, 
once you take it over, you shouldn't make any big changes right away as you're learning the business. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess these things. I mean, you bought it because you loved it, right? So why change it? Right. 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 Uh, so, have you seen people make any common mistakes as they go through this process? Things which you've seen happen over and over again. The search process or the running the business process, the transition process. Yeah, well, more the search process, but also the transition process. Yes, uh, I I can start off on that, Rick. I I'm sure you have sure. your own list. I I think that. I think that two of the common mistakes that Rick and I see in searchers, one is that they'll start sourcing and they'll be looking at typically 20 or more deals a week, and then they'll find a deal that is very interesting to them. And while they pursue that deal, and remember from the time you find a deal to the time you close on it could be three to five months, they drop their searching for other deals. And so because sometimes a deal you work on doesn't actually end up closing, you start to do due diligence, you discover that in fact it's not what you thought, and you pass on it, just to pick one example, you then have to restart all of your sourcing again, and you slow up your process. And so Rick and I always, always recommend to people, keep on sourcing as long as you can, even up to the closing of whatever deal you're working on. So that's one mistake that we see. Uh, searchers make. And the second is that um, they they don't screen rigorously enough. In other words, part of this business is to be spending all your time generating new opportunities, filling the top of your funnel, and then spending the other big part of your time on those few deals that are likely to be attractive to you and which you're likely to be able to close on. And so you have to have a sort of ruthless, efficient funnel And sometimes we will see searchers sort of asking more questions and asking more questions and asking more questions and having this big inventory at the middle of the funnel, which sucks up time and takes it away from those two ends of the funnel, which are really where the value is and created in a search. Those would be common mistakes that come to my mind. Rick, are there any you'd add to that? Those are, those are certainly the uh, biggest and most common mistakes that you've identified there. I would just say a little bit later on in the process, one of the things we find is that people have too broad a due diligence list. Mm. Instead of looking at the one or two things that are really important, they'll want to ask every question about the business imaginable. And as a result, uh, it's hard to ever get the business to close. So there's that sort of manacle focus on what do I need to do today to get the deal done? And and what do I need to do today? What question has to be answered? Not because it's an interesting question, but because if the answer to this question is no, I'm not going to want to do the deal. And if, if a question doesn't arise that, you know, the answer is no, I won't do the deal then you shouldn't be asking that question, right? right? You should focus on entirely deal execution. Right. Do you recommend that people should try and get a co-founder, almost like a partner who will go into the business with them? I recommend they get a dog <laughs> because the good thing about dogs is that is that they give you unconditional love 
and they're really happy with biscuits. They do not want half of your uh, the value of the business you're about to buy. And the problem with a partner is you're taking over a business that was run by one person, and now there's going to be two of you. So you're going to have to split the pie in some ways. Hmm. Dogs don't, you know, require <laughs> you to split pie. the pie. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So I, I think this is great. Just, I, I have one small question, more resources oriented. So you mentioned, you know, how there are these small brokers who, who do this. So do I just sort of go to like go google.com and search for buy a small business and see what comes up or do you recommend any source? Yeah, exactly. These these people, as you can imagine, want to be found. You know, they're not like Mossad agents who try <laughs> and not be found. Their business is all about collecting people on both sides of the transaction. So you start by just Googling uh, small business brokers. And uh, there are a couple of industry associations of small business brokers, and uh, they will provide membership lists to you. And so very quickly, you'll find your way to more small business brokers than you can, than you can possibly reach out to. Okay. Um, so that is a, that's a very straightforward part of the process, moves very quickly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard and Royce. This was wonderful. I, I think this is a very good option for people to consider and certainly a new option that I don't think many people think about. Is there any other advice you'd like to share? And actually also, where can people find you online? You mentioned that how you blog about this a lot and people should definitely buy a book. Uh, well, well, if they uh, just Google our names, right? They, they yeah. come up with lots of podcasts and videos and, and alike uh, just by Googling our names. Okay. Exactly. You'll see the full set of literature we've written. And then, of course, on, the book is available on Amazon and elsewhere. So uh, those are two ways to get to our work very easily. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much and enjoy your travel. It seems that you're – are you traveling for the book or something else right now? Uh, no, we're just uh, – we're away from campus during the summertime when we write and do other work. So uh, that's where you found us on this uh, okay. lovely day before the before the holidays come up. I see. But thank you. This has been uh, this has been a lot of fun uh, talking to you, and you've asked some great questions. Thank you so much. All right. Yes, thank you very much. Bye now. All right, you take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Royce. Bye-bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us. Just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, Bye-bye.